Okay, hi, how's everyone doing? Are you all right? I'm a Brit, I like this cool weather, it's really good. Just a little bit of drizzly rain would really make it. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, it's really good to see you. Um, the sermon that we've got today is, um, well, maybe it won't actually be that simple, but I'm going to make it sound simple to start with. It's just about a single word. It's about a slippery word. I hope you know the kind of word that I mean there. Slippery words are the kind of words that are used frequently but have lots of different meanings. Slippery words are words that can make you look like you're saying one thing when really you're saying something very different. Slippery words, I guess, are a bit like slippery surfaces, right? They're treacherous. And when you meet one, in your mind, you need to see the hazard sign. Slippery when wet. This is a place where you can take a tumble. I don't mean the Bon Jovi album there, okay, although it was a great one. (laughs) Being able to detect slippery surfaces is especially important if we're serious about following Jesus, because there are lots of slippery words floating around Christianity. So let's start with an easy one. The word Christian itself, what does it really mean? Well, the answer is it means lots of different things. Its original meaning captures one of the most wonderful and unexpected truths in our whole world, that men and women like us can come back into friendship with God, that we can belong to Christ. Christian is the name that we give to someone who's died to their old self and is living by and for Jesus. Christian is a word that we use to describe actions like Christ's and teaching like Christ's. But it doesn't always have to mean this. So when someone identifies themselves as a Christian on the US census, there's often very little connection between that label and anything distinctively Christ-like. More than half the people who check that box hardly ever darken the door of a church. And many of those who do do it because they think it's a way to earn their way into God's good books. And that's got nothing to do with Christ or Christianity. So what does this tell us? Well, it simply says, danger, slippery word. Make sure you know what it means before proceeding. Make sure it really means what you hope it means before you trust it. Holiness is another one. In England, I don't know whether it's true here, The word holy has become pretty much interchangeable with words like serene or awesome. So you'll hear someone say, I saw an interview with the Dalai Lama. What a holy man. Or I visited Westminster Abbey very early one morning, and it gave me goosebumps all over to see the tombs of those ancient kings and soldiers and writers. What a holy place. But in the Bible, holiness is nothing like that tame Holiness in the Bible is the burning fire of God's perfection. So when John saw the holiness of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation, he tells us that he fell at his feet as though dead. And this matters because when we sing, holy, 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 we better not be coming with the world's point of view. This is not an opportunity for us to pat God on the head and say, you make me feel all shivery inside. (laughs) This is a chance for us to fall on our faces before the throne, just as we will one day when we actually meet him in heaven. So here it is again, danger, slippery word. Make sure you know what it means before proceeding. Well, the slippery word that God's put his finger on for us today is the word ministry. Ministry. This is another word that we hear all the time, isn't it? 
my friend has started working for this great not-for-profit ministry. Our prayer time this morning really ministered to me. The pastor at that church down the street has a really significant ministry. I'm thinking about leaving my job and going into full-time ministry. Ministry isn't a word that we're actually going to find in our passage today. But the question, what does ministry really mean? What does authentic ministry really look like? Is the central idea of our passage. Just like the word Christian or the word holy, we're going to see that the word ministry can have a variety of different meanings. And we need to exercise caution when we hear it and when we use it. I think as I've been studying this, that this passage shows us God that God has a vision for ministry that contrasts radically with a vision of ministry that some of us might have grown up with or some of us might have in our heads. And I think God really wants to press this vision into us as a church. He wants us to see ministry the way that he sees it. Now, the passage is kind of long. Um, I'm not going to ask us to stand. I think actually what I'm going to ask us to do is just sit back and enjoy hearing this lengthy story from the book of Acts. But I do want to keep that spirit of standing for God's word because when we do that, we're doing it because we're expectant of what God is going to speak to us. So as you turn to this passage now in Acts 9, come to it in that way. I think God's got some riches here for us this morning. So let's look at this, anticipating what he has to say to us. So the passage runs all the way from Acts 9 verse 32 through to 10 verse 35. Okay, here we go. We're joining the story here right after the conversion of Saul, and the narrative is now swinging back to focus again on Peter. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda, and there he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. But about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Now, Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. So Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken to the upstairs room, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning to the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And one day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, 
Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened and sent them off to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to this house so that, you could hear, so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along, no doubt to see what would happen. The following day, he he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house, praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. And said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. And now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. Okay, so that's our passage. Now, the next time out in Acts, we're going to then go on with Cornelius and Peter. But that's the chunk that I want to tackle today. So to help us get our heads around a long section of scripture like this, what's your kind of standard procedure? How would you go about getting your teeth into this? Something that I think most of us would do, something that certainly I try and do, is to take a bit of an inventory of the the whole of the book, particularly the parts of the book that we've uh, already read. 
And a common way to do that is just to flip back through looking at the chapter headings in your Bible. You know, those little section headings that are added in can be helpful. And if you have an NIV like me and you do that, this is what you're going to find. Flip back to chapter one and you find the chapter headings read, Jesus taken up to heaven and then Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Okay, so we remember what that was all about. Then chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the day we're celebrating today. And then Peter addresses the crowd and then the fellowship of believers. Chapter three, the first heading is Peter heals a lame beggar. Then Peter speaks to the onlookers. Chapter four, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The believers pray. The believers share their possessions. Chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that was Peter dealing with that instance of sin in his congregation. Then the apostles heal many. Again, Peter and John primarily. The apostles are persecuted. And then the choosing of the seven, that's Peter and the apostles delegating responsibility to members of the congregation. And then it shifts a little bit, and we see Stephen seized. And then in chapter 7, Stephen speaks to the Sanhedrin, the stoning of Stephen. Chapter 8, the church is persecuted and scattered. Philip in Samaria. Simon the sorcerer, Philip and the Ethiopian. And then in chapter 9, Saul's conversion, Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Okay, so what you notice is that if you've been kind of looking at it at this level of detail, it's just been a little while since we've heard anything about Peter, hasn't it? In chapters 2 to 6, Peter was really the center of the action. But in the last few chapters, the focus has turned to Stephen, and then to Philip, and then to Saul. So if we look at Acts the same way that maybe we would look at a modern film script, or the way that we look at the development of a storyline in a novel... What we find here in our passage seems to be the return after the exploration of some peripheral details back to the hero of the story. Peter is back, and he's back with a bang. First of all, we notice that the range of his operations has been extended. Back in the early chapters of Acts, Peter was the leader of the church in Jerusalem when the apostles were called to share the good news about Jesus in Jerusalem. Peter did the talking when they had to give an account of themselves before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Again, it was Peter who did the talking. But now we find that Peter has got a broader ministry. So in chapter 9, we find that he's embarked on something of a regional tour. It's not too adventurous. The two towns that he visits, Lydda and Joppa, are both in Judea. But it's definitely not just Jerusalem anymore. So maybe Peter's like a successful pastor who goes on a speaking tour across his home state. It's not too adventurous, but he's spreading his influence. His message has achieved a sufficient level of impact that people want to hear him. He has authority. His church is growing. People want to come and hear why. (coughs) The next thing we notice about Peter is that he also has a powerful ministry. Again, this comes from chapter 9. If we just kind of squint at this passage and filter out the details... The broad brushstrokes of it look very much like the ministry of Jesus himself, don't they? Healing the paralyzed, raising the dead. Who does that sound like? So you can see why people were asking Peter to come and speak in their churches. Because when Peter arrived, things happened. He got instant results. This wasn't a slow-going, seed-planting type of ministry. No, this was a two-week mission trip to a needy area where amazing things happened. And if only we had been there. Peter had amazing experiences, and everybody seemed to think really highly of him. The next thing we notice as we move on into chapter 10, 
with this story about Cornelius is the fact that Peter had a high-profile ministry. Peter apparently didn't have to burden himself by dealing with people who didn't matter. He didn't have needy people with stubborn problems slowing him down. Peter was called by people like Cornelius, who really deserved his attention. And so we learn in our passage that Cornelius's good deeds were so striking that they'd come up as a memorial offering before God, which creates the picture, doesn't it, of some kind of heavenly committee meeting where the sheer weight and quality of Cornelius's good deeds forced him onto the agenda and persuaded God to bring in the really big guns. Wow, this guy Cornelius means business. We better send in the best we've got. Hey, where's Peter? You with the wings. Go, take a message. And then the final thing we notice is that Peter has a mold-breaking ministry. Do you see how Peter is open to new and unconventional movements of the Holy Spirit? He's ready to depart from tradition. He sees a vision, and without any apparent need for consultation or any serious reflection, he just jumps up and leaves to go and take the gospel to someone that up until now he's believed should not be allowed to hear it. It feels right. He saw a vision. And he's also smart enough to be able to justify his actions after the fact. He's a theological innovator. He's creative. He's able to adapt his beliefs to accommodate the needs of changing times. He can finesse and reshape his message to fit the practical decisions he's already made. Well, what do you think? Peter seems to emerge as the paradigm of our modern vision of ministry. What are our churches and our not-for-profits and our attempts to build a reputation among our Christian friends ultimately all about? All too often they're about achieving breadth, getting noticed, growth, extension, impact. They're about seeking power, getting results, parachuting in and saving the day. They're about getting a high profile, connecting to the influential, being freed from the burden and the tedium of the ordinary They're about breaking the mould, adapting what we believe to fit the needs that we perceive in our culture. But do you see the problem with this is that it's completely false and sick and rotten to the core. Everything that I've told you about Peter so far is completely untrue. And if at any moment we were taken in by it or drawn to it, then shame on us. Because this passage is not all about a return to Peter as the hero of the story. That's 21st century man-centered nonsense. This is simply a part of a continuing narrative in which Jesus is the hero. And when we read it, when we look at it through that lens, the vision of ministry we're going to get out of it is completely different. So now let's do this properly. Keep your Bibles open and let's see how we go with this. The first thing I want to do here is go after this idea that ministry is all about breadth and opening up a steadily growing audience by sheer force of personality. Is that what's really going on in Acts 9, 32 to 43? Well, if we look carefully, we find that Peter's mission trip to Lydda and Joppa actually has absolutely nothing to do with his capabilities as a visionary leader and everything to do with Jesus' capabilities as the king of his kingdom. First, think with me about the why. Why was he even going Chapter 9, verse 32, tells us that he was going to visit the Lord's people in Lydda, and that while he was there, disciples who lived in Joppa sent for him. So there were already Christians in both these places, 30 miles away from Jerusalem, 
And that fact needs an explanation. How did they come to be there? Well, the answer provided by Acts is that Jesus made a promise to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he worked through the decisions of his followers and his enemies to achieve it. Jesus blessed the church in Jerusalem with rapid growth despite steadily mounting persecution. And then in Acts 8, he worked through the decision of the Jewish leaders to drive Christians out of the city. Do you see being exiled made it almost impossible for them to avoid sharing the gospel? You can imagine the scene as Christian refugee families arrived in these places like Lydda and Joppa on the run from Saul and his henchmen. You know, it's kind of like, where, who are you and why are you here with all your worldly belongings on your back? Well, we're the Ben Israel family and we're from Jerusalem and we got kicked out and we're on the run. Why? We're part of this thing called the church. What is the church? Well, you're kind of straight into your gospel outline there, aren't you? You're drawing your six boxes if you were there for that sermon. You can't really avoid it. Because from there, it's just natural to explain who Jesus was and why he came. And it wasn't any wonder that churches started to spring up in these little towns. Because every day, they were welcoming in individuals and families who knew the gospel and had preferred to leave their homes rather than deny it. Just as an aside here, I love the fact about the way the Christians were exiled from Jerusalem because it just so makes the point that Rod made last time out about Jacob's dream. Do you know the reason why the Jewish leaders thought driving Christians out of Jerusalem was such a cunning plan? They were cutting people off from the temple. And in their mindset, that was like the classic military tactic of denying your enemy food or cutting off their water supply. Surely any Jewish splinter group worth the name would just evaporate if they couldn't get to the temple. But the Jewish leaders completely failed to realize how serious Jesus was when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Because you see, in New Testament theology, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament teaching about the temple. He is the temple. Jesus is the place where men and women can meet with God. And Jesus is there wherever two or three people meet together. So by scattering the church all over the Mediterranean, the Jewish leaders threw out thousands of little temples into every town and every city. They did the most effective job of propagating the gospel that anyone could have possibly done. A staircase coming down from heaven to earth opened up whenever a believer prayed. And the same is true for us. So when we fall on our knees, do we realize that? Do we look at our couch at home or even the seats that we're sitting in today, and say what Jacob said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So now we thought about the why. Why is Peter out in these little towns? Now let's think about the how. How was it possible for Peter to travel freely to these places, teaching the gospel and encouraging churches? Wasn't there supposed to be a full-scale persecution underway to stop this kind of thing? Well, yes, that had been the plan. But newsflash, quite without any involvement from Peter, Jesus had interrupted the whole thing by appearing to Saul in dazzling glory and bringing it all to a grinding halt. So in Acts 9.31, just before our passage, did you see that it says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, and that living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers? 
So do you see what these two observations do to our warped idea that effective ministry is all about confident individuals breaking out into new territory? It's total rubbish. Genuine ministry breaks into and only into the places that Jesus has already opened up and he alone deserves the praise. Do you think if Peter and the other apostles had been at the controls, they would have chosen the persecution that drove the church out of Jerusalem to the places like Lydda and Joppa? Not in a million years. Do you think they would have had the guts to approach Saul with some kind of tactical masterstroke to bring about a season of peace? Nope. Jesus is the architect of all genuine movements of the gospel, and he will not give that glory to another. Next, let's go after this idea that genuine ministry is all about power. This is such an insidious concept in the church today, isn't it? That certain gifted individuals deserve to be the centre of attention and that we should follow them, hoping to see signs and wonders. But the problem is that there's absolutely no support for this in our passage or anywhere else in the Bible. We've already seen part of the reason why. Early on, we noticed the similarities between Peter's miracles in Lydda and Joppa and the miracles of Jesus. In Acts, Peter heals a paralysed man, and then he brings a dead woman back to life. Now, in the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, we see exactly the same sequence in the ministry of Jesus. So in Mark 2, Jesus forgives and heals a paralysed man, and then in Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, There's even a little play on words that links these passages together. So in Mark, do you remember Jesus calls Jairus' daughter Talitha, which means little girl? And did you notice that the lady that um, Peter raises in Acts is called Tabitha? So immediately our minds are drawn to the connection between these two miracles. But whenever we find passages with similarities like this, we also have to ask ourselves, what are the differences? And the differences turn out to be really striking. So when Peter heals the paralytic in Acts, did you notice the words that he uses? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. But when Jesus heals the paralytic in Mark 2, he simply says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And boom, he gets up and goes. When Peter raises Tabitha in Acts, he gets down on his knees and prays and only then does he turn towards the dead woman and say, Tabitha, get up. But in Mark 5, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, he simply takes her by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, get up. She just gets up. So can you see that when Jesus does it, he does it on his own authority. He doesn't pray. He doesn't invoke any name because he doesn't need to. He simply commands sickness and death to yield to him, and they do. But with Peter, it's different. Peter explicitly distances himself from the power that works through him. Peter is like a person who mixes two volatile compounds together in a chemistry experiment. He doesn't just stand over one of them, commanding it to burst into flames by his own power. His job is merely to bring the two things into contact, knowing that one will powerfully affect the other, simply because of what it is. Peter brings sickness and death into contact with Jesus because he knows that the result will be explosive. So with this added perspective, let's ask again, who are these healings in Lydda and Joppa really about? Well, they're not about Peter at all. They're all about Jesus. Peter's dependence on Jesus is absolutely explicit. He is a minister 
in the truest sense of the word. He simply serves as the means through which the will of the person he serves is put into effect. He doesn't originate policy. He isn't the source of the power. He's just a broken vessel willing to go where Jesus sends him to do his will. All right, now let's go after this whole idea that genuine ministry is high-profile ministry. I think this is one of the most kind of prevalent misconceptions about ministry in our generation. We think it's all about connecting with people who somehow deserve our attention. And you'll remember how this came up when we looked at the passage. Peter is summoned to Caesarea, which was the Roman regional capital, and he's gone there to meet a centurion called Cornelius. So immediately we know we're dealing with a guy who is significant, someone to whom others looked for direction. And Peter is called to come and give him direction. So in our minds, we do the kind of relational mathematics and work out that Peter must be even more significant, right? And then we have the whole thing about Cornelius's good works. In chapter 10, verse 2, did you see the way that Luke introduces him? At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Then in 10 verse 4, the angel says, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. And then in verse 22, Cornelius' servants arrive at Peter's house and introduce him as a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. So in our minds, all this easily leads to the impression that this is some kind of vision of successful ministry and that we should seek to be or seek to follow people who get assignments like the one that was given to Peter. But the problem with this is it's just not what the passage teaches. We may be able to justify it just by superficially skimming across the surface, but it doesn't stand up to, look, to looking closely at the details. First of all, think with me about the location of this story in the book of Acts. Luke is presenting us here with a repeating pattern of stories. So in chapter 8, we see Philip taking the gospel to Samaria. Then Peter and John show up to witness and authenticate what God is doing. And then they take the news back to Jerusalem to keep everybody informed, kind of back at base. Now we have exactly the same thing repeated. Philip took the gospel to the nations when he met the Ethiopian. Now Peter is witnessing and authenticating the fact that this is really what God has in mind by going to Cornelius. And now in chapter 11, next time, We're going to find that he takes the news back to Jerusalem to keep everybody informed back at base. So it's a repeating pattern. And that structure in the book is then forcing us to pair up Cornelius and the Ethiopian as the two examples of Gentiles to whom the gospel goes. Now, you'll remember when we studied Philip in the Ethiopian that the thing that just jumped off the page there was that God meets the needy, not the proud. And so if these two passages are parallel, that's got to be the same lesson here. God isn't impressed by people who are trying to work their way into his good books. The Ethiopian was pursuing God because he was aware that he had no other hope. So let's just assume that the same is true of Cornelius. And there are details here in our passage that suggest that Cornelius is in exactly that spot. Did you see in 10 verse 3 that Luke tells us the hour of the day that Cornelius was praying? 3 p.m. or in some of your Bibles, the ninth hour. Now, it's kind of odd that he should include the exact time of day, isn't it? Why does he do that? Well, the answer would have been obvious if we were first century Jews. 3 p.m. was the hour of sacrifice at the temple. And what was the hour of sacrifice all about? 
bringing your laundry list of good deeds to persuade God that you deserved his attention? No. It was about coming to God with nothing but need, falling before him, asking him to accept you on the basis of the righteousness of something or someone other than yourself. Luke has the same idea in mind when he tells us that Cornelius' prayers and gifts to the poor had come up as a memorial offering before God. Come up doesn't mean that they came up on God's agenda, as we thought earlier on. What Luke is thinking about is incense coming up or rising up from a sacrifice of remembrance. So what does that mean? Well, what we're seeing here is just the exact parallel of what we saw with the Ethiopian. Our seeking and Cornelius's seeking was not irrelevant to God because God actually inspired it. God inspired him to seek him. And God is aware of the duration of our seeking. It's okay for God to come and say to someone, hey, I remember how long you've been waiting for me. Cornelius' good deeds aren't mentioned here to show us that he was trying to earn God's favour. They're mentioned to show what is the natural outflow from a heart in which God is working and in which he's put the desire to pursue him. Just as God saw the Ethiopian's long journey and when he was ready, he met him, the exact same thing is just about to happen to Cornelius. So do you see this passage doesn't teach us that ministry is all about avoiding the needy and the messy and going after the big shots. Peter doesn't go to someone who is above need. Quite the opposite. Peter goes to someone who, in defiance of his worldly position, actually identifies himself with the needy. So why are we so determined to put ourselves in the position of importance in ministry? Jesus is the person who is really important. Have we forgotten who it is that we're serving? And how can we hold on to the idea that we're only called to the influential when Jesus himself said, it's not the, he- it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous and not sinners. That's the vision of ministry that the Bible gives us as a model to follow. And now finally, let's go after this last misconception about ministry, that it's all about finding ways to break the mold and be theologically creative. You'll remember we got into this whole thing by looking at the way Peter seems to shift strategy in this passage. Before Acts chapter 9, Peter has been all about his fellow Jews. He's been based in Jerusalem. He's been traveling in Judea, and he hasn't stepped outside those boundaries. But now in our passage, he changes tack. And with one stroke of what looks like brilliant tactical thinking, he realizes that the gospel, if it's reserved only for the Jews, will only reach the Jews. But if it's open to the Gentiles, it could shake the entire world. So he makes some neat theological adjustments and presents the whole thing as a fait accompli to his teammates back in Jerusalem. But you see, the problem with this analysis of Peter's actions is just that it's total fiction, and I want to show you why. First of all, if Acts was building a vision of ministry where the plaudits go to the innovator, we're just looking at the wrong guy here. Because Peter wasn't the first person to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, he wasn't even the first person to take the gospel to the Samaritans. Philip was the man who really broke the mold. So Peter was consistently one step behind him. Next, we've got to question whether Luke really intended to make Peter look great here at all. Did you notice what it took to get Peter to move with this idea of reaching out to the Gentiles? God sent him this vision of animals being let down from heaven on a sheet three times 
before he was willing to take it seriously. And even then, he has to send an angel again to actually get him to go downstairs. Peter found what he was being asked to do here physically distasteful. It's pretty graphic in the passage, isn't it? God knows that Peter is so grossed out by the idea of taking the gospel to the Gentiles that he has to give him a dream about eating reptiles to really get his attention. So we're absolutely not looking at a picture of an enthusiastic innovator here. When Peter takes this assignment, Luke is going out of his way to show us that he does it reluctantly. The truth of this becomes even more apparent when we think about the place in which Peter had the dream. Did any of you spot that? At the end of chapter 9, we read that Peter was staying at the house of a tanner called Simon in the city of Joppa. Joppa. What does that mean to anyone? Any thoughts about Joppa? Familiar from other stories? Jonah, isn't it? Jonah and the whale. Joppa is the place that Jonah fled to when God asked him to summon the great Gentile city of Nineveh to repentance. So it shouldn't really come as any surprise to us to find another reluctant missionary to the Gentiles here in Joppa. Peter and Jonah are kind of parallels of each other. We couldn't ask for someone who conformed less to the stereotype of groundbreaking theological innovator than Jonah. Well then, the same thing is probably true of Peter. But the real force of this Jonah parallel is that it reminds us that what we're looking at here isn't actually innovation at all. Peter and his Jewish friends may have been appalled at the idea of taking the pure and spotless message of God's mercy to the Gentiles, but God never was. All the way back in Genesis 12, those foundational words to Abraham, do you remember? God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And again to Jacob, as we heard with Rod last time, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will pretz, you will explode out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. This is what God had in mind from the very start. God intended that the nation of Israel would be a kingdom of priests to their neighbours, that the uncleanness and need they saw outside their borders would draw them towards it that it would draw them to intercede on the Gentiles' behalf, just like our uncleanness and our need draws God to us and to intercede for us. I think many of you know know by now that I love the passage in Isaiah 49 that really gets at this point. Laying the ground for the coming of the Messiah, God tells his son, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob. I will bring back those and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And then the Jonah story itself just completely knocks the bottom out of the whole idea that this passage in Acts creates some kind of model for theologically innovative ministry. God tells us that he's even concerned for the animals that live in Nineveh. So how much more the people themselves? God's heart revealed in the Bible, has always been set on the ends of the earth. The task of ministry is to search the scriptures and to know his heart and to not move beyond it one iota. Jesus is the person who crafted and underwrote this gospel message that we bear and that we're called to share. He is dishonoured when we claim credit for discovering it or for reinterpreting it. So how are we doing with this slippery word ministry? 
think. Perhaps we can tie all of the threads here together with an illustration. Many of you know that after months of waiting, I joined the Crossroads staff, yeah, finally this week, on a, on a voluntary basis while we wait for my work visa to come through. So I'm really excited about that. As part of this whole thing, the church very kindly offered to buy me a laptop. So after working with Rod on exactly what it should be, I had the privilege of being given Rod's credit card details and going off to the Apple store to get it. Now, what I want you to see is that in this situation, I was acting as a minister of Rod. I was taking a decision that Rod had made and implementing it under his authority. So here come some questions. Would I have been faithful with that responsibility if I had sought a broad ministry and visited maybe more stores than Rod and I had agreed? How would it have been if after going for the Apple store, I moved on to Banana Republic and then maybe the Audi dealership? (laughs) Um, The answer is obvious, isn't it? It would have been a total breach of trust. There's nothing in the nature of ministry that makes breadth intrinsically good. Do you see that? We must only go where we're sent. Would I have been faithful with this responsibility if I had used the experience to build a reputation for personal power? If I'd stood in the Apple store and made a point of letting everybody see the ease and speed and immediacy with which the credit card details were authorized? Wow, people might have said, there's a man who doesn't even need to ask about trading in his old machine. He must really have resources. Wouldn't that have been a total travesty of the true situation? It's Rod's credit card that has the power. The fact that it goes through reflects kudos on him, not me. So do you see that there's no room for a vision of ministry that's all about emphasizing personal power when the power belongs to someone who isn't us? Would I have been faithful with this responsibility if I made it a basis for the type of ministry assignments I was prepared to accept in future What if the next time Rod asks me to do something, maybe it's he wants me to look after his dog or he wants me to carry out the trash? Am I going to say to him, well, I'm sorry, Rod, but ministry is all about doing impressive things for impressive people. I'm the kind of guy who goes to the Apple store. I don't do this low-level stuff. Wouldn't that just be a total joke? Well, if it's a joke here, it's a joke in Christian ministry too. And would I have been faithful with this responsibility if I'd used it as an opportunity for some self-directed reinterpretation of Rod's wishes about the computer? How would it have been if I'd just decided to add a few last-minute tweaks to the spec, a few last-minute upgrades, or maybe abandon the computer idea completely and kit myself out with Apple TV and a fully loaded phone contract? Again, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Faithful ministry is not about deciding what to do and what to say yourself. Ministry is not about seeking an ever-growing sphere of operations. It's not about power and instant results. It's not about passing over the needy in preference for the influential. It's not about dreaming up radical new interpretations of the Bible. Ministry is about being Jesus' hands and feet, modeling his heart in his world executing his will, bearing his message, and expecting his fate. Peter knew this better than anyone. When he arrived at Cornelius' house in chapter 10, verse 25, did you notice that exchange between the two men? Cornelius fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Well, so are we. 
So let's hold each other accountable to that and strive in everything that we do in ministry to make our great saviour look as great as he really is. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, it's our heart's desire that you would be lifted up to your proper place and that as your ministers, that we might humbly execute your will and that after doing so, we might just say we are unworthy servants. Lord God, would you forgive us for the times when we have made serving you about us such, such a travesty. You are so great, so lifted up. Lord, you reign in heaven. You are the maker of the earth. You're the saviour of our souls. God, guard us, protect us, forgive us for the ways in which we've put ourselves above you. Lord, might we put ourselves below you, that you might be exalted and that your glory might be seen in Jesus' name. We fall.